From Decrypt Media, this is the Decrypt Daily. My name is Matthew Diemer. Today on the show, Scott Cipollina and myself, we talk crypto sanctions. Foreign, domestic, individual, country. That's coming up on the Decrypt Daily. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. Today is Friday, March 4th, 2022. This is a long one today, so I'm going to get straight into crypto prices. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talks. And I'm recording this at 11.52 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Bitcoin is sitting at $40,742, down 4.2% in 24. It's still up 4% on the week. Why did it drop? Again, reasons. Hilarious because I see the same headline for things going up and things going down. Most of them say, amid the war in Ukraine, Bitcoin goes up. Or, amid the war in Ukraine, Bitcoin goes down. (laughs) Whatever it is, Bitcoin is down 4% today. Ethereum is sitting at $26,080, down 5.2%. Tether's number 3, Binance Coin is number 4 at $388.80, down 3.4%. And USDC is number 5, rounding off the top 10. We have XRP. Terra Luna, Solana, Cardano, and Avalanche. Total market cap, we're at $1.80 trillion, a BTC dominance of 42.8, and an F dominance of 17.7. And like I said in the intro, Scott Chipolin and myself, we talk all things crypto sanctions, Ukraine, Russia, the individual, the national, conversations we need to have. Enjoy. Scott Chipolina, how you doing? Welcome to the show, sir. Thanks, Matthew. How you doing? I'm doing well, sir. Um, so what we're going to talk about today, as everybody knows, because I spoke about it yesterday, is we're going to talk about the dilemma of crypto payments to um, people that are in Ukraine, sanctions on Russia, individuals versus companies and oligarchs. Uh, just like there's a whole conversation about how crypto is subverting sanctions or empowering individuals. And I, I want to have this conversation. And I want to just preface this really quick to let everybody know that I am not coming in here with an, a firm stance on either side because I'm trying to think it through. And this, these are new conversations to have, conversations that we never had before. And so I, I, I want to make sure that I'm open-minded. I'm obviously pro-crypto. I am pro-innovation. I am pro-Bitcoin. Uh, but I also see that there is a need to stop what is happening right now in the uh, Russian aggression in Ukraine, we only have a couple of tools to to deal with that at this moment. So before we get into that conversation, I kind of want to preface this. And we're again, this is a lot of opinion. This is a lot of questions. This is a lot of discussion. I want to preface this with how you look at crypto, Scott, because I think that I want everybody to kind of like understand where we come from generally. And now I know there's the, and I want to preface this to something that I said on the podcast last week and to a letter as well from uh, a listener that said, Scott Cipollina, he's biased and blah, blah, blah. And I defended you, Scott. 
I said, Scott is a professional. When, when, when Scott writes an article, he comes from the, the news. He says, I see this. I put it on paper. Well, <laughs> paper in air quotes. And then you guys read it because this is what's happening. Uh, but I also want to know, like, personally, how you feel about crypto and the crypto space and what's going on here. So if you could, let us know. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, I suppose at a high level, what I would say, I don't necessarily think that I would consider myself to be pro or anti-crypto. I think that those are very restrictive and loaded terms. I'm not trying to dodge the question. I will I will expand on what I've just said. But I, I wouldn't at first I wouldn't say that I would belong to either of those two camps. Um, what I would say is that I am very skeptical of some of the foundational claims of the crypto industry. For example, that one day cryptocurrencies will act as a, a monetary reserve for the international community or that Bitcoin will become legal tender in the United States or or anything of that sort. I, I don't think that there's any evidence to support those those big grand claims. Um, that's my own personal view. But put, putting that to one side, I also think as a journalist that my job is to be uh, as skeptical as can be about anything that I'm reporting on, whether it's crypto or anything else. Um, and I think that, you know, to, to have before we get into the specific discussion, I think that the crypto industry does have uh, a lot of significant problems that it's struggling to deal with, uh, not least the um, the environmental impact of this industry and the resulting carbon footprint of something like Bitcoin or any other proof of work blockchain system. I also think that there is a lot of um, financial crime that goes on on the crypto industry ecosystem as well. That's not something that's unique to the crypto industry. Of course, that happens outside crypto as well. Before I became a journalist, I actually used to work in financial regulation. Um, so I'm no, I'm not naive in any way to the, you know, the world of illicit finance outside of crypto as well. But that's not to say that it doesn't occur in crypto either. Um, I think that one of the things that I always um, find interesting is when folks say, well, by virtue of the public ledger nature of a blockchain, we can trace illicit actors quite simply. I don't necessarily think that's true. Um, because while you can see transactions flowing from A to B, you don't necessarily know who's behind those transactions. So I wouldn't say it's as transparent as some people tend to imply sometimes. Um, and then also, I think that there's a there's a conversation to be had with regards to like the broken window fallacy, which basically says just because um, you you can trace who broke the window does not mean that the fact that the window was broken should be dismissed in the first place. So I think that you know that 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 would be if I can sort of as succinctly as possible. Uh, provide my sort of outlook on the crypto industry. I'm fascinated by cryptocurrencies. If I wasn't, I obviously wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Uh, but I do think that there are a lot of big, uh, you know, significant issues in the industry that the industry is struggling to deal with. You made a you made a, a statement there that I, I just want to ask you about because I think that the listeners understand um, where I stand on this. And I feel that some of the problems that are coming in the cryptocurrency space, you say that there's a lot of uh, either malign actors or um, malicious or fraudsters or whatever, or, or projects that are just dumb and they don't shouldn't even exist in the first place. Um, but I, I kind of feel that this is stemming from an innovation or stemming from the free market or stemming from entrepreneurs that are trying to figure out something. And a lot of these problems are being had or being or coming to, I guess, the surface because of the lack of, I guess, the ability to organize, to organize not only the United States, nor organize UK, the EU. Um, to organize, uh, you know, the globe to start to make frameworks and regulations to understand where these fit within financial markets, within uh, investing, within business, within securities, and so on and so forth. And so these problems, they bubble to the surface. 
because these things start happening and then it's the scramble, like I think most regulators do, and I don't really like the way that most regulations or laws are made. It's kind of like a half, it's kind of like a hindsight uh, sort of thing where they, something happens and then, oh, this is a thing. Instead of everybody telling you before, we should probably be talking about this thing. And they say, no, we're not going to talk about this thing until it's a thing because nobody wants to talk about the thing until something happens. And I think that this is kind of like we're seeing all over the, the, the country, my country, your country, the globe right now. I would certainly agree with that. I think that, you know, don't get me started on the pitfalls of financial regulation, the way that the traditional financial uh, markets work, because there is a there is a ton of issues there. And we don't have time in one podcast to to get through all of that. But I would also say that one of the things that I would I like to do when I'm looking at the crypto industry is to separate the the promise of the industry with the facts on the ground. So, for example, one of the promises of, of Bitcoin is that it's this anti-censorship form of money. And it may be the case that that turns to be the case at some point in the future. But right now, that's not the case. Right now, the only country that adopts or that has adopted Bitcoin as legal tender is a non-democracy in El Salvador. And there's plenty of evidence. We're not going to go into all this now, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. But plenty of evidence to go around to show that folks in El Salvador don't actually like having Bitcoin as legal tender. So I think that you know one of the most helpful things to do with the crypto industry is to separate the promise and the things that people say will happen by virtue of the existence of cryptocurrencies in the future, which may or may not happen. I'm not making a value judgment on that now, uh, but separating that from what is actually happening on the ground and what we have happening on the ground. And we'll get into one, you know, the biggest story in crypto now for the last week, obviously, as it is across the world, is the very serious problem of cryptocurrencies enabling the Russian state and Russian key individuals um, specifically to evade sanctions that have been levied across the country because of its invasion of Ukraine. So I think that there's, you know, there's a lot of things to unpack whenever people talk about the crypto industry. But if I could put a bow on this introductory chat that we're having, it would be to separate the narrative and the promise of the potential future from the facts on the ground. And I think that that would help anybody who's trying to understand not only this industry, but any industry, because that, that happens all over the world. Scott, I, I, I am the host. I only put bows on conversations and in, in introductions. <laughs> all right. So I don't know. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Thank, thank you for putting a bow on that, sir. You're you're welcome to put a bow on it anytime. Oh, um, you can do your job. I'll, you know, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to clarify something I said earlier, um, and I think that you brought up a really good point. Is I am pro Bitcoin, pro. It doesn't mean that I'm pro every narrative, and and I so there's a difference between wanting to move innovation forward, to have these discussions, to um, uh, support something, to see potential in something, to see good in something, and then believing every narrative. Yeah. Um, I, that's something important I wanted to clarify because skepticism is important. Without skepticism, you turn into a cult. Absolutely. No, I agree. 100%. So, so, so that, that's important. But I, okay, so let's move over to Ukraine in crypto because I don't know how long this conversation is going to go. So whoever's listening, maybe it's good to grab yourself a, a beverage or a snack or do something or get on the treadmill get now. Get comfortable. <laughs> you get comfortable or do something that's going to you know, keep you in, engaged because it might go on for a while. Uh, because the first thing I want to talk about is um, Coinbase Kraken, Binance, exchanges, and their role in this. And so what we're seeing is we're, say, we're seeing that, uh, first, let's preface this a little bit. As people who have been listening to the podcast all week, uh, they heard that these different exchanges are being asked by the Ukrainian government to shut down transactions to Russian citizens, to Russia in general, not only just to institutions, not only to uh, people that might be just a Russian whales that could be potentially financing uh, this war with Ukraine or 
financing Putin in some shape or form, but also Russian individuals. And and while these uh, exchanges are saying no, if we, if you say yes, we and you want us to do this because it's a law and you're making it, you're, you're enforcing this, then okay, we will do it because we have to. We'll listen to you, U.S. or U.K. or E.U. However, uh, this it's not right. This is not the ethos of the system. This is not their customers of ours, just like anybody else. And regardless, and outside of. Uh, what's happening. Uh, what do you think of that stance? And wh- where do you think that the, there's the flaws in that, I guess, logic of the exchanges? Or, or or do you agree with the exchanges in their stance? Well, I think the the, the most important thing to do here, because this conversation, I think, throughout the last week, we've, you know, I've been, I've been watching this very closely and seeing what folks have been saying on both sides of the fence. And I think what, what would be beneficial would be to have a bit of a, a base um, common ground that we can agree on with regard to the function of economic sanctions in the first place. Now, if we look at what the, the function of sanctions are, and we can have a humanitarian argument on both sides of this, we can, we, can, we can have our positions, but typically the role of economic sanctions are to be massive and sweeping economic damage across the country that has been sanctioned. So, for example, if you look at Iran, that, that there, are, there are a plethora of economic sanctions that have been levied against the Iranian state because of its nuclear ambitions. Now, the result of that is there are many Iranian citizens that have dealt with a lot of economic pain as a result. They are, of course, innocent. It is their regime that has questions to answer for here. The the reason why those sanctions are in place is because of the regime's nuclear ambitions. And the same can be said of North Korea, which has been sanctioned into economic oblivion, really, you could say it's the most sanctioned place on earth, probably. Um, And the existence of the sanctions that are currently in place against North Korea have made it all but impossible for anybody in North Korea to have any kind of economic upward ladder in their life. Um, Those North Koreans are, of course, innocent, just like many Russian citizens are innocent and they don't have blood on their hands the way that Vladimir Putin does. Um, But I think it's, it's first important to understand that the primary function of sanctions has been, rightly or wrongly, I'm not making a claim on this, but rightly or wrongly, the function of sanctions has always been to to impose massive economic pressure and pain on the state in question. So just, I think, to, 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 to branch out on that a little bit, an overview of the sanctions that have been levied against Russia and Russian interests so far, this is a fluid situation, right? But just so that for the benefit of those listening, um, there's been sanctions against Russia's largest banks, including its central bank, many state-owned enterprises, state-owned enterprises, I should say, uh, a select group of Russian banks have also been banned from the international payment system, SWIFT, uh, there have been targeted sanctions in comparison against key Russian individuals and high-profile political figures. The whole Russian Duma has now been sanctioned. Uh, there's Export controls have been put in place against Russia. Trade and investment restrictions are in place in Donetsk and Luhansk, which are the two regions that Putin has declared incorrectly is independent. That's part of Ukraine, but that, that's where this all began, the, you know, the, the inception of the conflict. Um, and sanctions have also been targeted targeted, it's worth mentioning, um, towards Belarus as well for the country's role in facilitating Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So that's that's really what we're, that's the subject in a nutshell that we're discussing here. So the crypto, back to your question, the crypto exchanges have all said, well, there is no legal grounds currently to restrict en masse all Russian users. That has raised some, that is that is ruffled some feathers, let's say, with folks that, I wouldn't say take for granted, but with folks that 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 agree 
on the promise from a policy perspective of sanctions the way that they are currently built. Sanctions are meant to, as I said, impose maximum economic pain and pressure across a nation state. Now, it doesn't take a genius to realize that if crypto exchanges allow for the flow of transactions in a sanctioned country, then it's obviously possible for those sanctions to be circumvented in one way or another. And that is upsetting for people that believe that sanctions as they are currently defined actually provide a big, significant policy um, benefit. So we can discuss you know, the, the, the merits of that. There are a lot of folks that say, well, hold on a minute from a humanitarian perspective, it's just not fair for everyday citizens of these countries to pay for the behavior of their governments. And we can discuss that true, that's a perfectly legitimate perspective. But that is the reason why there's been so much controversy around the decisions that have been made by the crypto exchanges. But I also want to point out that there's not, it hasn't only been the case that crypto exchanges have said, no, we're not going to do this. Whitebit, for example, which is a crypto exchange that's quite active in Ukraine and Russia, they actually mentioned uh, in an email to me, that they've put into place some procedures for checking sanctions lists, uh, trading activities with the Russian ruble have been closed and registration of users from the countries of the Russian Federation and the Republic of Belarus have been suspended. There has been no um, you know, international consensus on what crypto exchanges should do. So this exchange has, in a sense, taken its own decision to do that. Um, but it's just, I think it's worth pointing out that it, we're not talking across the board here that every crypto exchange has, has a shared opinion, so to speak. Um, you know, Coinbase, Kraken, Binance, some of the most well-known crypto exchanges have said that they're, they're not going to preemptively restrict Russian users and they will comply with any sanctions that, that may come about if, if that is to be the case. But I just wanted to point out that that's not across the board. We'll be right back. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I also want to point out uh, what exchanges are for. And obviously, everybody knows you can go P2P um, with uh, Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. You don't need an exchange. And the exchange is using is being used as the off-ramp. And that's the key issue for the exchanges. I mean, once you get your Bitcoin, you need to go into some kind of fiat currency. Either it's the ruble, the US dollar, the euro, or so on and so forth. And this is what the exchanges do is they facilitate that off-ramp. And they facilitate the on-ramp. So say you have rubles and they're falling you very fast uh, to the price of the dollar compared to the dollar. You want to move your Russian fiat to something that might be a little more stable and also get it out of the country if you can. And that's another thing Bitcoin is facilitating. So mm -hmm. these exchanges are facilitating that transaction. Obviously, as every Bitcoiner knows, you can go P2P with Bitcoin. You can say, okay, we're going to just transact in Bitcoin. So that is something that the exchanges won't be able to stop. That's something that uh, I don't think that uh, governments will be able to stop. Obviously, we can talk about that. However, uh, this is what the exchanges are for. Just to go back to what you were saying a little bit, um, and this is obviously opinion, because you, you mentioned that you don't want to talk about uh, the humanitarian aspects of this. But I think that's the key thing that we have to talk about is the humanitarian well, yeah, I mean, aspects. I have nothing against discussing yeah, absolutely. Right. No, no. And I'm happy you phrased, framed it the way that you did. Uh, yeah. But I, I want I do want to talk about this 
we have modern warfare and we have modern uh, technology. We have um, modern warfare now is kind of like it changed during Vietnam War because we had, you know, TVs everywhere and everybody could see what's happening. Now we have minute by minute tweets and Instagrams and, and TikToks and YouTubes and, you know, whatever, all this different media that's coming out all the time. Not only has the way of covering war changed, but the way of uh, engaging war has changed. We have drones, we have different, uh, uh, you know, weapons and so on and so forth. So it's like we're fighting a modern war with antiquated weapons. And I see sanctions as an antiquated weapon because we're trying to weaponize the people of the country that did the bad thing. And so I think that's the thing that everybody's looking at is like, why are we still using the same kind of, I guess, old mindset? And I think that's the thing where we're talking about regulations. We, we started out this intro. It's like, I think one of the problems with cryptocurrency is that regulations aren't in place. So we don't even know how to deal with anything that happens. If it's creating a company or entrepreneurship or securities or even this international uh, trade issue or international transaction um, is that we are not being proactive with this and we have modern technology and modern tools and we're not coming up with modern solutions. And so we're still trying to use the same uh, tactics as before. It's kind of like applying security laws to cryptocurrencies or Ethereum that is obviously could be in some cases a security, but could be not. Uh, and, and I think that's the frustration with a lot of people uh, with this. And that's what I see in this humanitarian aspect. It's like we don't have to punish the people. Obviously, there's the argument that says, well, it's the people that are in the military. It is the people that do that are supporting them. There, there was 69 percent of people who allegedly voted for Putin. Um, I, a lot of heavy lifting there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Allegedly is doing some heavy lifting there. Um, yeah. But but it, it, that is one argument to it. Yeah. Uh, but I, the way that I'm looking at this is it's like, why are we having this, um, I guess, antiquated approach to a very modern changing system. And we, we, do, we have these discussions all around, I think, when it comes to enforcement. What do you think about that? And, and do you think that this is the time to do it? Or are we too late? Also, I want to bring up um, the kind of dilemma or the hypocrisy of, of allowing or being for Ukraine and individuals in their government taking crypto payments as a way to help them finance their humanitarian efforts, but also stopping payments from Russia to harm them. So there's obviously there's this whole, you know, it's a double-sided, it's that double-sided coin that's obviously has a hypocrisy built into it. Yeah. Well, I think to, 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 to mention, to address the first part of your question with regard to modern warfare and old warfare and sank the role of sanctions, I think it's, it's, it's very important at the risk of, <laughs> really upsetting maybe some people that are on this call, but I think it's very on this on this uh, podcast, but I think it's very important to point out that while there are very legitimate humanitarian concerns with the impacts of economic sanctions, and they have been, the evidence for that is widespread across the world. Um, I don't think it can be understated the importance of sanctions in preventing conflicts that we haven't seen. So the two examples that I, that I've mentioned recently, Iran and North Korea, I, I would say that, you know, a, a significant reason why Iran and North Korea do not have more geopolitical power than they currently do have is because their countries have been sanctioned heavily. And those sanctions have been part and parcel of American foreign policy, European foreign policy to deal with what is or what are essentially, you know, some of the biggest national security or international security risks that the world is facing today. So Iran's nuclear ambitions, North Korea's nuclear ambitions, the way in which they, they, they spread or sell illicit weapons across the world. These are 
very serious threats that economic sanctions provide a very real answer to. Um, now, I'm not saying that that's a perfect response, um, but I, I don't think it's it would be fair of anybody discussing this issue to understate the impact of economic sanctions as they've been applied in the past and as they're being applied now to Russia with regard to you know the prevention of conflict. Now, of course, with unfortunately, with the situation in Ukraine, this is all a little bit um, you know, academic. I think it's worth pointing that out. I think it's really important to remember that economic sanctions have been a cornerstone of, of Western foreign policy for decades and for very good reason. Um, to the second point of your discussion, of your question, uh, about whether or not there's a hypocrisy involved here. I suppose it's easy to frame it in that way. Um, I'm not so sure if I would call it a, a hypocrisy myself. I think it's, you know, it's it's right and good and something to be celebrated that the Ukrainian government has received a, a, a ton of money from cryptocurrency donations. Currently, I think the figure stands at over $50 million. Uh, at the beginning of the conflict, the vice prime minister of Ukraine, whose name is Mikhailo Fedorov, well, actually, this began to be to be completely accurate. It began with the Ukrainian government's official Twitter account. Official cryptocurrency donation updates have now moved to the account of the vice prime minister. But at the start of the conflict, the Ukrainian government's Twitter account shared a Bitcoin and Ethereum address and welcomed any crypto donations. Um, they have since started accepting donations in Polkadot and in, Do in Dogecoin as well. So there's a lot of money that has been donated so far, about 50 million, as I said earlier. And that should be celebrated. That's objectively, you know, that is a wonderful thing. It's good. Um, but then to get, I suppose to get into the crux, the crux of this issue, uh, how on the other side of the coin, to use a bit of a pun um, that you used, what's the risk that cryptocurrencies can help Russia evade sanctions? So really, there are three, to my mind at the very least, there are three ways in which crypt, uh, crypto can help Russia circumvent all these sanctions that we've discussed. The first and most urgent issue, I would say, is ransomware. So Russia essentially leads the world in ransomware revenue. Last year, uh, a study found that Russia or Russia-backed sources um, gained about 74 to 75% of the world's ransomware revenue in 2021. Uh, I actually spoke with a former FBI agent about this issue a week or so ago, and he told me that cryptocurrencies are, and I quote, the primary factor uh, that, that, that merits with, that, that has caused a growth in the illicit ransomware industry. And the reason for that is just because of the speed of payments that we see with cryptocurrencies and the, the, the ability for these payments to scale to degrees that we haven't seen prior. So that's that's probably the you know the the the, the most urgent uh, concern with regard to those who worry about Russia evading sanctions with, through the use of crypto. There's also Bitcoin mining. So Russia has muddled over a, a crypto mining ban or Bitcoin mining ban for a while now. But Putin has previously said himself that Russia has, and I quote, a competitive advantage when it comes to mining Bitcoin. There's some figures out there from uh, blockchain analytics firm Elliptic, Elliptic that people can look up as well if they're interested that have found that uh, Iran, again, another heavily sanctioned country, has raised a uh, billion dollars worth of crypto when it comes to uh, Bitcoin mining. So we can see that that strategy also bears fruit too if it's used. Um, and then thirdly, I would say the use of non-compliant um, businesses. So uh, the concern here is we're not talking about some of the exchanges that we've mentioned already, but non-compliant crypto exchanges that have allowed Russian-affiliated criminals to access uh, money and to, to, to enjoy transactions that otherwise would not be possible in the traditional financial world. So for example, in September last year, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, which is the uh, sanctioning body of the United States Treasury, 
they sanctioned a cryptocurrency exchange called Swex. Uh, and it was found that Swex was actually allowing Russian affiliated criminals to circumvent sanctions by accessing their cryptocurrency funds through the exchange itself. So um, the threat is very real. I would say that you know folks online that have been saying crypto cannot allow Russia to circumvent sanctions are simply wrong. That would be my view. Uh, the evidence is there that it's been possible before, not only from you know citing Russian examples, but examples elsewhere in the world that it can happen. Um, and I think a little bit of nuance is, is important here too. Nobody is seriously making the case that the cryptocurrency industry can allow the entirety of the Russian Federation to circumvent the entirety of sanctions that have been levied across the board. The Russian, the, the Russian economy's total annual imports is about 250 billion. Uh, total annual exports is about 420 billion. Uh, the banking sector's assets is, a, is about one and a half trillion. So the total market cap of all cryptocurrencies in comparison is a touch under two trillion. I don't think anybody is seriously making the case that um, this industry can, uh, can, can allow Russia to circumvent every sanction that, that, that it's facing. What the problem is, is that it can allow key Russian individuals uh, we've heard a lot in the news about Russian oligarchs. We've heard a lot about how sanctions are targeting um, some of Putin's closest, including Vladimir Putin himself. Um, and I think when you look at it in that, through that perspective, through that lens, then it becomes a, a much more tangible concern that, yeah, of course, no one is actually saying, it would be absurd to say that Bitcoin and Ethereum could be the only two tools through which Russia could have an economy that is identical to the economy that was yet to be sanctioned before the invasion of Ukraine. That's absurd. Nobody is making that point. But the point that is being making, and I would say correctly, is that the crypto industry does provide many opportunities for many key individuals to circumvent the sanctions that are specifically applied to them. And that would go the same, that, 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 that would hold true not only for individuals, but also key financial entities, including the central bank, um, or other state-owned state -owned enterprises in Russia that have been sanctioned. They too, can circumvent sanctions by using cryptocurrency. So I think that that would be an accurate thing to say. Um, and again, just to reiterate, nobody is seriously making the case that the entire widespread sweeping list of sanctions that have been applied by the European Union, by the United States, by the United Kingdom, that all of them could be rendered useless by cryptocurrency. That would be an absurd thing to say. I guess uh, to kind of round this off, I kind of want opinions here um, of, of, of solutions because Again, to all the listeners, and I'm putting this little timestamp in here because I, I want to make sure that it's clear that I don't know the solution. I want to have the conversation. And being a host of a podcast, I have to ask these questions so I can keep the conversation going instead of just agree or disagree. It's, it's about having the conversation. So I just want to throw that in there. And if you anybody wants to write in about anything that we said here, please, Matthew Aaron at Decrypt.co, Scott at Decrypt.co. Um, that's S. C-O-T-T -T at decrypt.co. I want to make sure everybody can send him all, all the hate mail. And please CC me if you do send him the hate mail. Um, <laughs> some, that's, that's, I have to say as well, I've been quite, I've been, I've, I've, I've been pleased to see that there's been a lot of thoughtful feedback from our conversations before, which, which is always nice to see. My listeners are thoughtful people, man. I've never had a, a, a very bad email. I never had a big FU email or or you're a piece of shit email, nothing. <laughs> have you never actually had an email like that? Because I've had plenty. <laughs> oh, I, I bet you have. But I'm, I'm not that guy, Scott. <laughs> yeah, I've had many. But, um, you know, those are 
you can put them in one category. Uh, you know, the, there's been some really good feedback from the show is what I'm trying to say, which which I appreciate. <laughs> no, we, we, we have good listeners here and we, I always appreciate their emails. Uh, it makes me want to know what they're thinking and also helps me learn as well uh, from these different point of views. And again, that's the reason why I like having conversations with people is to get these different point of views and have a more well-rounded um, opinion about what to do about certain situations. And mm-hmm. so I, I just, I want to ask, I guess, a two questions. One is about governments and their role with cryptocurrency. Now, now we're seeing that sanctions are, are not as effective as they were before because of cryptocurrency, because of Bitcoin. But we also see that, Cutting off banking and cutting off finances doesn't isn't just for the the bad people. And I'm putting that air quotes like you just said, oh, Iran. Right. And the Iranians, it's 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 sad that the individual Iranian is hurt by these sanctions. But the government's bad. And North Korea, it's it's sad that uh, people are starving in North Korea because they don't get any any um, help or or they're not because the government's bad. Right. Yeah, And the tragic humanitarian cost is that these everyday citizens bear no guilt whatsoever that that is that is true and i don't think anybody would would disagree with that and, and, and it's always the other person right it's these bad places and we go oh yeah we justify the cut off or the humanitarian crisis because of these bad places and these bad actors and these bad leaders uh mm-hmm. but we did see people's banks and stuff get cut off in canada and were those and were the trucker and the freedom convoy bad people was that justified or are we going down a slippery slope where uh, cutting off banking and banking sanctions and funding sanctions is coming to a point where it is becoming a not a question of who the bad people are anymore, but we're picking who the bad people are. And now you now we have this tool to say you're we're setting this off. Is cryptocurrency in some cases, I'm not saying all cases, a maybe a an equalizer where if we're going to everything digital and they can turn off your your accounts because you want to protest the government, uh, that Bitcoin is an equalizer that says, well, at least we have this tool, this option. I suppose in theory it is. Um I would say that. You know, should it be in practice or not? Um, we've talked about the ways in which Russia can can evade sanctions quite in depth already. Um, so I would say it is in practice, but um, I don't think that is the kind of situation that will persist for a very long time. And the reason I say that is because we're talking about the responses that we've seen from crypto exchanges in the industry, but there's also been a rival um, response from governments and international organizations around the world. So. This began, <coughs> excuse me, as as we've said before, with Ukraine's vice prime minister who who requested for all major crypto exchanges to block addresses of Russian users. But then, beyond that, uh, the United States has been, I would say, sort of perhaps not leading from the front, but have been one of the most you know one of the, one of the most form, foremost um, players in this regard, as they often are. Um, the Treasury has introduced new regulations that have built on an existing executive order that was designed to stifle illicit Russian activity. And these rules, I'll just quote here uh, for the benefit of the podcast, these rules take aim at, and I quote, deceptive or structured sanctions or dealings to circumvent any US sanctions, including through the use of digital currencies. The US has also been facing a lot of political pressure to do something like this. Uh, Former presidential candidate Hillary Clinton has been talking about the role of crypto exchanges amid this conflict, uh, several Senate Democrats have been pushing Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen to do something about this issue as well. And then across the pond, European Union, France's finance minister earlier this week said that the EU is, and I quote, taking measures to ensure that Russia doesn't use cryptocurrency to evade sanctions. And just today, news came out that Japan 
uh, well, Japan's financial services um, regulator, which is the financial services agency, and the crypto industry body, which is called the Japan Virtual and Crypto Assets Exchange Association, are also collectively assessing the risks of Russia evading sanctions by using cryptocurrencies. So whether or not this is an equalizer, um, I suppose I would answer by saying whether it is or it isn't, I don't think it will be for long, because I think it would be an absurd situation to imagine a world in which actors like, and I mean national nation state actors like Russia or North Korea or Iran could circumvent sanctions at will and with ease through the use of a, a nascent industry like cryptocurrency that is not something that will be tolerated by the United States or the European Union or any other uh, international power. So whether or not it's it's something that acts as an equalizer to a degree now, uh, I would be shocked if that remained to be the case, the further along the line we get, the more established the crypto industry becomes. So, so just to answer my first question is, what should governments do then? And yeah. as you see, well, that, then, that's yeah. that's the, I guess, the overall theme of the conversation is because governments are trying to figure this out. They're going to exchanges, they're going to the Treasury Department, they're going to the Department of Justice, they're going to um, the UN, they're going to, they, they're, they're talking about this everywhere but the question is what do we do and and how do you take something that is meant to be decentralized uh meant to be peer-to-peer and put this under a uh, purview that will be controllable in times of of emergency so how how do you what do you do well i think what i what i'd say to that question would be um i'd like to cite a u.s treasury published a report in october last year i believe it was uh, and they, they provided two recommendations uh, for generally American sanctions policy to deal more, more, more aptly with the, with the risk of cryptocurrencies allowing for bad actors to evade sanctions. The first they said was that sanctions should become more easily understood, more enforceable and more adaptable. And by that, they mean, obviously, you know, this is a nascent industry that a lot of folks still don't understand. The, you know, the language of sanctions should be such that it is clear to understand you know, relevant terms like decentralized finance or peer-to-peer exchanges and things of that sort. That would that would provide, in terms of the nuts and bolts, a very a very achievable and and straightforward situation where people can actually understand the purpose of the sanctions as they pertain to the crypto industry. So that would be the first thing. The Treasury also said that it needs more investment in deepening its institutional knowledge with regard to the digital asset industry. I think that goes for the rest of the world as well. This, as I keep saying, and as we've said on many different occasions, it's, it's very new into 13 years. is not quite that new necessarily anymore, but in the grand scheme of things, it's still quite new. Um, and I think that lawmakers around the world and sanctioning bodies around the world need to get their head around the function of cryptocurrencies and the ways in which they can deal with situations like this. I also think, uh, pivoting away from governments and from sanctioning bodies, I think that there's something to be said about the, the industry itself, making sure that this is a high priority for itself. So just to go back to the the uh, the role of crypto exchanges, Binance, like like others, like Kraken and like Coinbase, have said that they're not going to institute a preemptive blanket ban on ordinary citizens, and they've said that they would be compliant with any any sanctions that were to arise in the future that target um, you know their business model and and and, and their prospective slash potential customers. Um, that's all well and good, but I also think it's important to realize that. The folks that lead these exchanges, they should be very acutely aware that this is an incredibly important situation. And if they're called upon to help, they should 
jump at that opportunity to help. So I would just like to read out a slight, an, an extract from, a, from an interview that Shang Peng Zhao, the CEO of Binance, did with the BBC here in the UK earlier this week. Um, the BBC asked him, for those that have been sanctioned, as in not you know, a preemptive sanction against Russian users, but for those individuals that have been sanctioned so far, what is CZ, Shang Peng Zhao and Binance doing to ensure that they're not using Binance's services? Shang Peng Zhao replied by saying that person won't be using our services, and if the money comes to their platform, they'll freeze it. Uh, the BBC then asked, how many accounts has Binance frozen in the last week? And Zhao said he did not know. Um, that made my jaw hit the floor, to be quite honest. I was shocked to hear that, that the CEO of a major cryptocurrency exchange was not aware in the week that we've had with the discussion that's been going on about the role of cryptocurrency and sanctions evasion, that he has not taken a personal interest in actually knowing how many of these individuals that have been subject to sanctions have been targeted by Binance, as they should be. And the fact that he didn't know, I think, spoke volumes about potentially where this situation is in the industry. I think people should realize this is an incredibly important situation. And those that have been sanctioned, those that have been found to be aiding the Russian government in its invasion of Ukraine in some shape or form, and they have deservedly been sanctioned, should be the kind of folks that these indus- that, that, that the industry and any other industry should be proactively making sure are not on their books. Um, and I think for a CEO of a major exchange to, to not be aware of those figures when he was asked was quite surprising. I think the last, and to put out the, my bow on this whole conversation, see, I have the power of the bow, sir. Oh, there it is. There it is. There, there it is. I, I used my, my executive power. Um, I just want to go back to the original statement that I made. It is the lack of comfort, the lack of security that the governments are giving the average individual. The thing that happened in Canada, and we can debate this, please again, email me, Matthew, Matthew Arnett, decrypt.co, about freezing, freezing people's accounts with a protest gives worry to a lot of people. I've heard people that are building in this industry, CEOs and entrepreneurs that feel still so unsafe trying to build their companies to forward their livelihoods. I've seen tweets that says, this is my livelihood. How do I not know even how to pursue my livelihood? If it's building in DeFi, if it's making NFTs, the lack of clarity, the lack of security that is being perpetuated in this industry. And this is one of the only industries that 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 is allowing this to happen, this uncertainty, this turmoil, this, I guess, we're just going to back off and see how everything happens, but yet we're still going to crack down and companies or individuals or it, it, it's it's I think this is a conversation that has not been had and needs to be had. And we and it shouldn't be allowed to be perfectly honest with you, because there are people's livelihoods at stake. Also, the slippery slope that we can very easily imagine from the individual being cut off from their bank accounts and is also a conversation that is looking like how is it? And I know this happened in Canada. This is not happening in the UK or the United States. But how is it that, you know, protests or things that we thought were rights of, of, of a democracy or free country now can be, be weaponized with their own personal livelihoods and wealth? And it, I'm not just saying that with bank accounts. We're also saying this with companies. We're saying this with art. We're saying this with NFTs. We're saying this with DeFi. We're saying this with um, interest bearing accounts like on BlockFi. These are things that are so uncertain that it's creating this, I guess, insecurity within this whole industry that is almost purposeful. And, and I, and I want to just make sure that we're continuing to push to try to get clarification on all of this. And I think that going back to what you said about CZ, I, I agree. He should have known what he's doing and the, the steps that his country is taking in this situation. In this situation, I want to silo and stand alone. 
Um, but at the same time, to understand where CZ is coming from, CZ has bounced from country to country to try to make sure that his company, his exchange survives. Remember, he started in Beijing, or I'm sorry, in Shanghai, and he got bounced from, from China. He went to Hong Kong. He went to, 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 to Malta. He went to Singapore. And it's all just because we just don't know how to deal with this. And so and he's been and there's been all kinds of control. So I understand where it's like, hey, are what what factors are going to be coming into this again to say you we need to control what you're building. And this is yeah, you're going to say something. Yeah, no, no, not necessarily about CZ. I just think that, I mean, with regard to Binance, there has been um you know, a, a seemingly endless list of, of regulatory controversies surrounding that exchange over the last year and, and, and more than that. But um, with regard to your wider point here, I think the, the first thing that everybody in and outside of the crypto industry can do uh, and always do better is care more about situations like this and, and treat them with the requisite urgency that they deserve. So I, I just with regard to the example that I gave, I was surprised that CZ did not know how many of the already sanctioned individuals had 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 been essentially frozen out of Binance. Uh, you know, if I was the CEO of a crypto exchange, I would be taking an active interest in this uh, more so now than ever. But um, well, that's that point I want to make really quick. Sorry, 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 Scott, because I just want to go into this point is that because the money is going digital and mm-hmm. I, this, this conversation is all over the place. I'm sorry, everybody. But because money is going digital, we don't have the security of, of hoarding cash that much in, in our mattress or in our closets or in a shoebox anymore. And I remember during COVID, there were places, I don't know if it was states or cities that said, we won't take cash. Yeah. Um, this was a thing that we will not take cash, everything digital, because we don't want the passing of COVID. This worries me, to be honest with you. And I don't know if it, because during the depression, people hoarded cash because they're like, hey, we need to have our livelihood. Now that livelihoods are digital and it can be shut off or turned off or or changed or manipulated. Mm-hmm. I, and, and I know we're talking about crypto and we're talking about uh, what's happening in Russia and Ukraine, which is a totally separate situation. But we also see that there is these new monetary um, tools and policies and that are can be enacted. And that is kind of like the way that we're developing now that takes our livelihoods out of our hands. Yeah, well, and that, that bothers. I think that bothers a lot of people. Yeah, well, that one of the biggest concerns with, you know, adjacent to crypto central bank digital currencies or CBDCs, as they often abbreviated, that one of the biggest concerns with, with those is that they provide governments with seemingly infinite powers of surveillance and takes people's financial lives out of their hands. I can understand that concern. Absolutely. But I would reiterate that with regard to the established financial world and the role of economic sanctions, be they in this instance against Russia or in previous instances against other countries like Iran or North Korea, like we've discussed, um, that is not new. You know, that, that's, been, that's been an established um, answer for geopolitical issues and controversies around the world for a long time now. Um, and we can, of course, we can have our discussions about whether or not that's a, a, a you know, an ethical or a moral response. We've talked about the, you know, the, the, the lack of guilt for everyday citizens of these countries that then feel economic pain because of what their governments do. Absolutely. Um, but this is not the first time we've gone around this discussion. This has been an issue that the world has wrestled with for decades. That's the only thing I would I'd point out on that front. Scott Cipollina, thank you for coming on this show and having an hour-long discussion that ended up with nothing. We, we didn't solve the, 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 <laughs> the problems of the world today, uh, but I appreciate you talking about it. I was so excited to do that, but we didn't. <laughs> Cheers, Matthew. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Decrypt Daily. I'll be back tomorrow with our weekend update. And until tomorrow, in the meantime, I mean, please go to Apple Podcasts, like, subscribe, share, leave us a comment, 
and go to Spotify and smash the five stars to show everybody that this is the best damn crypto news show in the biz. And until then, happy hodling, everyone.